Have you ever wondered why God sent Jesus and not Arnold Schwarzenegger? I mean, Arnold Schwarzenegger is the ultimate action hero. Have you ever wondered why God did not send Arnold Schwarzenegger? How epic would that have been? Thankfully, Mark wrote chapter 8. So let's dive in. Mark is a book of two halves, and today we find ourselves in the pivotal, in the pivotal moment, in, in the point where it moves from part one to part two, from class one to class two. And the focus of Mark up to this point, if you like, class one, has been all about the question of who is Jesus? And Mark has helpfully reminded us of this question and this focus by placing the healing of a blind man immediately prior to the passage that we've just read. And in that healing, Jesus says, those who have eyes to see, those who have eyes to see can see who Jesus truly is. But up to this moment in Mark, It's only the demons who have realized who Jesus truly is. Mark verse 3, 11 says this, Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and shouted, You are the Son of God. People so far have missed the mark. As Mark 6 reveals, some say John the Baptist has risen from the dead, but others say Elijah and others say, you know, a prophet. It's a list that Peter repeated in our passage this afternoon. But when Jesus directly turns to his disciples and says, but who do you say I am? Then the first human gets it. The first human announces that Jesus is the Messiah. This is it. This is our transitional moment. This, finally, someone has worked it out. Finally, someone has worked out that Jesus is not just a prophet, but he is Messiah. And now Jesus has been named. His identity has been revealed to humanity. Mark's gospel shifts from who is this person to what kind of person is he? Or to put it more accurately, what kind of Messiah is Jesus? And the claim here in Mark is that that Jesus, Messiah, that he wasn't just some bog-standard prophet, but he was the true king of Israel. And that is a hugely dangerous statement to make. If Jesus is the true king, the true king of Israel, heir to David's throne, then Herod, who claimed to be king of the Jews, well, he can't be king. And this isn't just bad news for Herod, but for the Roman Empire itself, for Caesar. Because if Jesus is God's true king, then Caesar is also no longer king. 
And many Jews were waiting for this moment, waiting for the moment when the Messiah, God's anointed king, would come and defeat his people's enemy, would rebuild the temple, and God's healing and restoring power would be borne out, not just in Israel, but throughout the whole world. For many Jews, they were still exiles in their own land, ruled by the occupying might of Rome. And many thought that perhaps Rome was the enemy that God would come to destroy, to root out of their land. So they assumed that the Messiah would come in the form of some great military leader, in the form of some awesome Arnold Schwarzenegger-style action movie, to kick out the Romans, to reclaim the land that was given to their ancestors, to restore Israel to its rightful place once and for all on the world map. I wonder how you would like God to intervene in your life today. I wonder how you would like God to intervene in the world today, like a conquering Messiah, charging into battle, like an action hero, sorting out the messes in the world, dethroning those leaders who just seem to make it more messy, less safe, less Christian. It is perhaps this great military leader that Peter has in mind when he declares, you are Messiah. He had certainly been expecting the Messiah to to somehow restore Israel to Jewish rule. And so begins class two, part two of Mark. Then, Mark 8, 31 says, he began to teach them, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed. Hold on a minute. This can't be right, can it? This is not what Peter had in mind. This is not the Messiah that that Peter thought Jesus was going to be. How can a suffering Messiah deal with Rome? No way. This isn't going to happen. This isn't going to happen on my watch, Peter says. The disciples had worked out that Jesus was the Messiah, but they hadn't quite figured out just yet what the Messiah had come to do or the scale of what he had come to do. Rome may have felt like the great enemy of Israel. Hundreds of thousands of troops at the emperor's command. Land stretching from Portugal to Egypt, from Germany to Turkey, and most importantly, occupying their own land, Israel. They certainly looked like a great enemy that God would, you know, take care to send his chosen king to deal with. But Rome is not the real enemy. God has something far bigger in mind. An enemy that makes all the forces of Rome in its height of power look insignificant. 
The real enemy is evil and death itself. To think of Rome as the enemy is to think in merely human terms. This Messiah had a far bigger vision, a divine vision for the restoration of all things. And somehow, the only way to deal with this true enemy, to defeat, to defeat evil, to conquer death, and for God's kingdom to be established was through God's anointed king's suffering and death. Why? Well, the second half of Mark begins to unpack that question. As Jesus turns towards Jerusalem and begins to travel to the place where all those things will happen. Jesus was not the type of Messiah that Peter expected. Peter was thinking merely in kind of human terms, through human eyes. He needed to think bigger, to see from God's point of view. And often, in my experience, it might be your experience too, that when God does things in the world, it seems to be counterintuitive. It seems to, to not make sense in the world around us somehow. But that's because we only get a tiny fraction of the picture. It's perhaps like that old parable of three blind men feeling an elephant, and one is feeling a kind of a bit of a leg, and they try to describe it to the other one, and the other one's feeling a tusk and tries to describe it to the other two, and, and, and no matter how hard they try, they, they're never going to build a perfect picture of what an elephant looks like because they're only describing the little bit that they have sight of. God can see the whole elephant. We only get a glimpse, a small fraction of what it looks like, of what God is doing in the world. And so we need to come to God and we need to ask him and say, God, give us your sight to see the things that you are doing from your perspective so that we may not only see what you are doing, but we may live that way too. Because living that way is countercultural. It doesn't seem to make sense. Look at Jesus' call to, the, his, uh, to his disciples. He says, you know, if you're going to follow me, you need to pick up your cross. You need to deny yourself. If you want to listen to a sermon that really unpacks that last little section really, really well, can I encourage you to listen to Viv Thomas's sermon from a couple of weeks ago on Sunday morning. He spoke really well on what that looks like in our lives. I'm not going to do that this morning, uh, this afternoon, because Viv did such a good job. I want to focus on a slightly different angle. The true king has come, and he has established his kingdom. Jesus has come, and through his death and resurrection and ascension, he has established his kingdom in this world. And wherever it is made known, it overthrows the powers and assumptions of this world. It turns them upside down. 
And this puts us in direct conflict with the world's way of doing things. But when we see from God's perspective, when we join with what he is doing, we get to see his kingdom move in power to break strongholds, to release captives, to bring freedom, hope, justice, mercy, love into this world. The invitation from Jesus is to come and follow. Not like Arnold Schwarzenegger charging headlong into a situation, but to come humbly, to come as he leads us, to be prepared to suffer. Theologian Tom Wright puts it this way, Jesus is not leading us on a pleasant afternoon hike, but on a walk into danger and risk. See, when we join with God, when we get God's view, when we choose to live that way, it puts us in danger. <clears throat> but danger that is well worth living out because it brings transformation. It brings God's goodness to bear in this world. Let's pray for a moment. Lord, we thank you that you came not to do things in a human way, but to do things the Father's way. And we pray that you would give us the sight to see what the Father is doing and the heart to choose to join in, to seek to make your kingdom known in this place that we may see the forces of evil flee and goodness and mercy and peace reign in our lives and in the world around us. Amen.